Good morning, church family. I want to invite you all into a joy this morning that is not circumstantial. It is lasting. We all stand and let's worship together. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. We won't be quiet. We shout out. If you would scoot to your left, it helps our usher so much. If you've got any room to your left, and then you can have a seat. Good morning, fellowship. My name is Josh, and I work with our student ministry, FSM, for 7th through 12th graders. We're so glad you're here with us today. We have some opportunities we want to share with you guys, things going around the church. One of those is with FSM. Uh, we have students that are going on a trip to Japan this June, June 6th. 
through the 15th. And we're so excited. They're working really hard to raise support. They'll be going and working with some of our global missionaries in Japan. And so we're really excited for this opportunity for them to grow, for them to see a different culture, but more than anything, for them to catch a vision for God's heart for the nations, for his mission and his global vision of the world, uh, and for them to get to take part in working with this community. So uh, if you would like to help us in that, um, we have an opportunity for donations, and you can go to our QR code here, and we would lo- we love to invite you to come help support us as our students head on this trip. Uh, but also, if you have questions about that, this is my email up there. We would I would love to talk to you about it, tell you more about what's going on in FSM. Um, we're having a lot of fun right now. God's doing really, really cool things through cell groups, through our Sunday morning expressions, through lots of other things. Uh, we also have coming up a, a parent tech forum. Uh, at Parents in the Room, we know that it's a hard world to navigate with your children. Uh, technology, internet, phones, all of those things come with lots of questions, lots of fears. And so we want to help you uh, feel empowered to help your children in that space, uh, to disciple your kids and how to build a life interacting with the internet and with those things. And so our Fayette kids and uh, some teams from churches around the, around the area have come together to provide some, uh, some tools for you guys in that. One, there'll be different tools, different devices you can have on your phones for you and your kids that they'll introduce you to, but also just a, a way to go about this with your kids and as, as a family. And this is a really great opportunity. So February 28th, we'll have a parent tech forum. Uh, you can register for childcare here and find more information if you go to this QR code. Uh, please make this a priority. We would love for you guys uh, to be able to start uh, building that, building that together. And I've got one last opportunity. I know the kids are way cuter. Um, but the last one is something you don't want to miss, and it's our Ash Wednesday service this coming Wednesday. Uh, we'll have a worship service here on 7 as we get into the Lent season and into the Easter season, looking toward what Jesus has done and the life we find in him. And so we would love for you to join us here at 7 on Wednesday night for a worship gathering. We invited other churches in the area to join us. It's going to be a really, really beautiful moment. Uh, we do have child care available. You will need to register ahead of time. Uh, so go to that QR code there, and you can come join us for Ash Wednesday. That being said, I'll hand it off to Aaron. Yeah, that was probably some of the toughest announcements where nobody was actually listening to Josh. Everybody was just watching all the kids. And so uh, one of the signs of a healthy church is new life. And we've gotten to celebrate baptisms a lot over this last year. And so we've seen people give their lives to Jesus and experience new life. But then today, we actually get to experience new life. And so a sign of health of a church is as we get to dedicate our kids and how excited they are to be dedicated down there at the end. And so uh, we are excited for them. And um, so, yeah, everybody that's a parent out there, you're like, ooh, I've been there. I have been there. And so we're excited. These parents, what they have done is they have said, We want to raise our kids to know what it means to follow Jesus and to love Jesus more than anything. And they're here today because they want to declare that to y'all. And y'all have a responsibility too. We have a responsibility with these families. And our job is to pray for them, to help them, to disciple them, to model for these kids what it means to follow Jesus so they see examples in our community of faith of people who love Jesus more than anything. And so if you would say, hey, I'll do that, all I want you to say is we will. Thanks. Well, hey, I want to introduce these families to you. So we've got Finley Samuel Folks, and this is Ryan and Susie Folks. And so they have chosen Colossians 1, 9 through 12 for him as kind of a life verse for him. We've got Rhett Michael Johnson with Evan and Ashlyn Johnson, and they have chosen, that is a good picture, Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 for him as a life verse for him. And then we've got, I know, he he likes that verse. He's like, oh man, that was a good one. So we've got Jack Stephen Barnes and Millie Claire Barnes and their parents are Eric and Samantha Barnes. And so they've chosen 2 Timothy 2, 1 for Jack and Matthew 5, 16 for Millie. And so... We're grateful for them. And what I want to do is I just want to pray for you guys. I want to pray for y'all, and uh, then we'll get off the stage. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much, and we're so grateful for each one of these kids that you have blessed these parents with, but, Father, you have blessed our community of faith with. And so we pray for them that they would grow to know you and know how much you love them, and may they be people who love your word, who love prayer, and who follow you all the days of their lives. 
Jesus, we're so grateful for you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. next thing we're about to sing is the bridge. It says, now my debt is paid. It is paid in full. And so we're going to pause for a second and we're going to remind ourselves of that debt. Because what happens is if, if we forget that we're sinners, that we have a debt that needs to be paid, then we lose the weight of the gospel. And so we're going to remind ourselves of that this morning as we pause. And we're going to do that in the form of confession. So church, let's do this together. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a savior. And we can remember that and we can feel the weight of that, but we don't dwell there for those of us that have been redeemed. Amen. So for those of us that do believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and we trust him with our lives, and we follow him with our lives, we have hope that debt has been paid. So church, believe the good news that Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on whom the sun sets free, oh, is free in me. And now my debt is paid, it is paid in by the precious blood that my Jesus filled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on 
no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of those words that in, in, in Christ are being incorporated into Christ, being found in him that should give us everything that we need this day, not only for what we deal with inside us, our own heart, our own mind, but how we treat people outside of, of us and outside of these walls. And it's my prayer that we would honor you as king because you're worthy of it, Jesus. We pray this in your name as our king. Amen. You may grab a seat. Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we? Fine. Um, one quick announcement uh, before we, we go further here. Um, if you are uh, engaged or seriously dating in the room, um, which might create a, a conversation at lunch if you're not sure on the second category there, if you're engaged or seriously dating, um, then our eight-week premarital experience is coming up. It's actually going to start next Sunday night um, right in that uh, student center over there, 7 to 9 o'clock. Um, it is one of my favorite um, things that we get to do around here. It's one of my favorite things to get to teach in and be a part of. We've got some awesome table leaders lined up. We've got a lot of couples already signed up. So um, if that's you in the room or if that's you after the conversation at lunch, you can go to the website. You can check, uh, check this QR code out. Um, it'll take you there. Um, register like today, tomorrow, because uh, it's filling up and uh, we want to get you in there. It used to be called Merge. We're trying a new curriculum called Engage and we'll see uh, We'll see how it goes. So uh, if, you, if that's you, we'll see you next Sunday night right through those doors in, uh, in the Student Center. Um, I'm Garland. Uh, glad, glad to be with you this morning. Let me know who I got here. Uh, where are my Chiefs fans in the room? Some booze in there too. Good. I like to hear that. Kind of over the Chiefs. Um, now, I don't, I don't want to know. Uh, yeah, shots fired. You're right. And I got the mic, okay? Um, <laughs> You don't want to get in it with me, all right? So um, I don't want to know who's rooting for the 49ers, probably many of you. Where are my 49er fans? Wow, again, so I taught in the college service last week, and I did this very same thing, and I said, where are my 49er fans? There was one girl sitting right over here. Woo! Just one. So uh, I'm sure most of us are just excited to see Taylor, and uh, is she going to make it? Ooh, okay. Um, so that's what we're all excited about for tonight. Um, as we look at the passage, as we turn our attention in this rise and fall of David, so as we're doing a character study over these next few weeks, and we're looking at this character in the Old Testament, King David, um, just to get us thinking about where we're going to go this morning, if you remember back to, to when you were a kid, your parents have to teach you certain really important lessons, like, like one of the things that I guess kids, and I've got my, three of my own, they just won't learn the lesson, like too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. In fact, it's an, old, it's an old saying that essentially goes back literally centuries. Too much of a good thing can turn into a bad thing. And so just if I were to ask you, what comes to your mind when I say, hey, too much of a good thing can turn into a bad thing? What comes into your mind? So like for me, I'm a, I'm a 90s kid, 90s kids in the room. Where are you? A little more excited. Come on, 90s kids. So the best part about the 90s is, like, it was, a, it was actually a pretty good decade, and yet there was so much angst in the 90s. Like, in the music, it was just a lot of angst for pretty, being pretty good. The Hogs won the national championship, basketball. It was a great decade. So um, as a 90s kid, the thing that we were all worried about, all the parents were worried about, was TV. TV. Too much TV, 
It's gonna ruin your brain. It's gonna ruin your life. Too much TV. Uh, you gotta watch it. Don't, you got, parents are real worried about that, which I find incredibly ironic given how much screen time literally all of us spend now on screens. The hyper worry that we had about TV when it's just gotten way, 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 way worse in the decades to follow. And many of us turned out okay. Uh, I guess the jury's still out on some of us. Um, for many of you, I bet if I said too much of a good thing could be a bad thing, probably several of you thought food, candy, chocolate. And this is what makes Halloween so maddening for children growing up. Um, and I had, I've had to deal with this with my three kids. Think about what Halloween is, okay? It's really unfair, Halloween. Halloween, we tell our children, every single person that you know, all the people around you, they are just giving away free candy to anyone who goes to their door. And all you gotta do is put a stupid outfit on and ring the doorbell, and they're gonna give you all the free candy you want. And then as you get older, you realize you don't have to wear the stupid outfit. You can just walk up to the door. You have to go through the motions. What are you supposed to be? Eh, I don't want to do this anymore. Just give me the candy, hit the ding. And then you realize there's also the, there's the, there's those lazy houses that put the bucket out, and they say, just take one. You learn very quickly. There's no police out here for this. You can do whatever you want with this. You take as much as you want. And here's what makes can- uh, Halloween so maddening, and it's a lesson that you have to learn as a kid. You get home, you got a bucket, a mountain of candy, chocolate. And your intention is to eat all of it before bedtime. And your parents have to tell you something like, if you eat too much of that, it's gonna ruin your appetite, which I've never lost an appetite in my life before. You're gonna ruin your appetite. And it, can, it really messes with you. It's incongruous. And you have to learn the lesson of too much of this good thing. It'll really, really mess with you. Now, um, the worst part about that is when you compare it to what we're told we could have as much as we want of, Vegetables, even vegetarians in the room are like, yeah, Snickers looks pretty good. Uh, so even if you only eat vegetables, that still looks better. Now, here's one thing I think I am certain that if you look at the pages of human history, your life, my life, there's, so, there's one thing that was originally a good thing that none of us can handle, and that's power. None of us. It was originally a good thing, a good gift that we have turned into something that even the smallest amount corrodes our soul. We got another old saying, power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've seen it not only in, sadly, world history, both past, present. We, we see it in fiction. We, we love to tell stories of the, the way that power goes to people's heads and ruins them. Like we can't handle it. And yet as I... As we look at the passage, look at our world, I think we really have a hard time learning this lesson. And that's what we're gonna, that's gonna prime us a little bit to thinking about our passage here this morning. Now, if you have your Bibles, open with me. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel 24. Let me catch you up, because last week we were in chapter 17. David and Goliath, David's awesome, woo, kills Goliath. That's uh, sweet, look at this man's man, all that. But we're fast forwarding seven chapters to chapter 24. So let me catch you up. And if you're new to our series, let me just catch you up on where we're at. We're in ancient Israel. Now, we call it a nation, but it wasn't really a nation then. Think very agrarian, kind of connected, but loosely so, tribal units, all right? They're very vulnerable, and if they're just kind of mostly desperately hoping to survive. That's the experience of ancient Israel. We're in about 1,000 BC, give or take, okay? So that's, we put a mental picture on. Uh, and if you were to drop into this world, there's a, there's a universal fear most all of these people would be experiencing. One is the fear of famine. Two, the fear of drought. They usually go hand in hand. They also usually go with the fear of pleasing God or the gods. And then lastly, there's a massive fear of foreign invasion. I mean, if there's a famine or a drought, how do you survive? Well, you attack other people. And there was one particular group right next to the ancient nation of Israel, and it's called, they were called the Philistines. Now, they were, they were a relatively powerful group at the time. They were a kind of a seafaring nation. They dominate the coast. They dominate the ocean, or Mediterranean Sea in this case. And you can see them here in the yellow. It's the land of Philistia. They're the Philistines. Uh, now they we say Palestine. It's derivative from this, uh, this word. So this group was constantly moving into the territory where these agrarian, you know, Israelite families or communities are living, and it, it produced a real fear for them. And as the 
pages of our Old Testament turn uh, 3,000 years ago, we see the people of Israel begin crying out, Lord, you said you would protect us, you said you love us, but we're terrified, help us, send us some warrior, some king to to defend us. And they, they go and they find the perfect man for the job. He's tall, he's a warrior, he's handsome, his name is Saul. And Saul is anointed the king. So now they've got a leader, and it starts really well with Saul. But then, as we see the pages of 1 Samuel, this is chapters 8 through 16, by the way, Saul begins to unravel. He he essentially shows really no no mind, no heed. He pays no heed to Yahweh, sort of doing stuff. And it begins to unravel for Saul to the point where David says, where where Yahweh, the creator, says, no, 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 no. This, This man is not my king. In fact, he sends the religious leader, his name's Samuel, the book's named after him, the religious leader of the people, he sends Samuel, he says, I want you to go anoint a new king. Saul has fallen apart, that ain't it. We need a new king, and he sends Samuel to a little village outside Jerusalem called Bethlehem, and there, David is presented, and Saul, uh, and Samuel anoints him the new king. Now, you know what that produces. Saul has been anointed king, and he's still on the throne. Now David has been anointed king. Two claims for the throne, two claims for power. How well you think that's gonna go? How well has it ever gone in human history? We've never seen that before, have we? Two people claiming the throne. And it does exactly what you would imagine it does. It gets ugly. Now, it gets even more ugly because here's what happens. In the story we read last week, David is triumphant over Goliath, Saul should have been on the battlefield. Instead, David goes out, and as a result, the people start talking. Man, Saul's great and all, woo! But David, he's amazing. How do you think Saul's gonna respond? How would you respond? He loses it. And from chapter 18 to 23, you can see Saul in almost a manic, mad state, trying to hunt down David, trying to kill David. Then weirdly turning and feeling bad about it, but then trying to kill him again, then kind of weirdly turning and feeling bad about it. If you read chapters 18 to 23, you're like, what is going on? He's pursuing David. He's searching for David. He's trying to kill David. He wants to take out this rival to his throne. And he pursues him all the way down to the Dead Sea, to this little spring called En Gedi, because he's been told David's hiding out there. That's where we're gonna pick up our story this morning. So if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Let me read it. It's a fascinating story. It's an ironic story. It's supposed to be almost humorous in the irony. It's a really well-told story. Let me read it for you. I'm gonna read chapter 24, one to seven. Through the word of the Lord. So after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed, and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to the men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men, and he did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went his way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, cool story. By, by bet would be many of you were like, okay, now what? All right, cool. So I had to go to the bathroom. David cut the robe off. What do I do with this? Now, um, when, when we think about this story, when we see this story, and, and we consider it from its ancient perspective, the ancient community that was reading the story and telling it again and again in the gathered community of ancient Israel, one of the things that this story does 
is it legitimizes David's, uh, David's claim to the kingdom. It legitimizes David as the righteous king. In fact, later on in this chapter even, Saul will have these words on his very lips. David, you are more righteous than I am. David, surely the kingdom will be established in your hand. And one of the things that telling the story over and over and over again in the ancient community does is it reminds the people, David did not usurp Saul's throne. No, he had his chance, and he didn't take it. He's a legitimate, righteous king. Look how great David is. That's one of the purposes of this story. But a second purpose, and maybe the one that's more near to maybe what we might, might need this morning, is this story paints an amazing picture of humility. It paints an amazing picture of grace and mercy, even the one that has wronged you. It paints an incredible, amazing, almost otherworldly picture of somebody with power right there. I mean, think about the history of our world. Think about kings and kingdoms. Here it is right in front of David, and he'd be justified in taking him out. Saul's been trying to kill him over and over and over again. It's right there as men say, take it, take him out. And he goes, I won't do it. It's almost otherworldly. It's going to give us an incredible picture, I think, of what it looks like to have this kind of poise, this kind of humility, this kind of mercy that we see in David. So here's what I'm going to do this morning, or kind of how I process this. Um, I imagine, okay, David, if you were sitting here and we were interviewing David, and I said, how did you get this kind of poise, courage, to in the moment say no to power? This kind of humility, how did you get that? What would you tell us? And I just imagine, looking at the passage and uh, you know, what's in our passage, what do I think David would say to answer that? And I'm going to give you six suggestions, six things. So if you're note-taking, write them down. Six things I think David might say to answer that question. And we're going to move through them quickly. The first is this. This will be the longest, trust me. First is this. I think David would tell us, don't be fooled by the allure of power. Watch for it. Now, again, this is a story about two kings, an ancient throne. This is a story about nation and kingdom. And I think David would say, don't be fooled by it. See, David had watched Saul. He'd watched him fall apart. He'd watched the spirit of the Lord depart from him. David had seen what power had done to Saul, how Saul being dishonored drove him mad. I think David would go, whoa, whoa. Don't get fooled by the allure of power. It's seductive. It'll pull you in. Don't fall for it. Now, here's where I think we may may miss this morning. See, it's easy for us to go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's true for for the kings. Yeah, this is a story about ancient kings. I think politicians should read this and like, you know, dictators should read this and maybe CEOs should read this passage or something like that, but, but I'm not running for office. What, what, are you, what about me? What, what are you talking about? I'm not an ancient king. I think David would say, oh, let's go a little deeper. Let's talk about power. Let's go a little bit deeper and see that it's our quest for power, for honor, for glory, that actually it's at the root of so much of the conflict we experience both internally and with people around us at a macro level and at a micro level. I think David would say, let's dig a little deeper. Now, let's, let's do that. You don't have to turn there, but taking you all the way back to the beginning of the story, this is why I said earlier it's a good thing. It's a, it's a God-given thing that's we, that we have hijacked and made into an ugly thing. See, in the very beginning, this is the purpose for which God created humanity. It's an amazing high calling. God created humanity in his image to reflect his goodness out into the world through how we serve and bring stewardship to the world and back to him. We call that worship. And he tells us, Be fruitful, increase, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. Hear the language. Yahweh, the creator, is inviting humanity to a special vocation, a special calling to be his co-regents, his co-rulers in the world, princes and princesses of the creator. That's what we were made to be. What a calling. Now, if you've read your Bible before, how long do we make it before we screw it up? Just turn your page, by the way. Whoop, one page. Three chapters, but look, one page over. And what we see is 
instead of receiving this honor from the creator, humans turned and said, no, no, we can define wisdom. Uh, We can define evil and good, the good life. We would define power and success. We'll define it on our own terms. We can justify ourselves. We don't need that from you. We can make something of ourselves. And just notice what happens. Even something as foundational as marriage, designed to be this beautiful picture of mutuality, harmony, and intimacy, now what we see is this fight for power. To the woman, he says, your desire, see the next chapter, your desire for mastery, control, will be for your husband, that he will rule over you. You can sense it. In the very next chapter, one brother kills another violently because he felt dishonored. Yahweh didn't honor me like he did him. By the end of this beginning section of the Bible, chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis, what we see is a group of people coming together to make a name for themselves, building on new technology, building a city for their own glory and power. We call it the Tower of Babel. I think that the Bible is going to tell you and I that deep down in all of us is this desire for control, to justify ourselves, for honor, for glory, for, for power, just to get us thinking there. I'm going to let the, the German pastor from the 30s and 40s do a little work. So dig deep here. Dig deep and, and listen to what he would say. He's so profound. It was really 100 years ago. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He would say, from the very first moment when one meets another person, he is looking for a strategic position he can assume and hold over against that person. There are strong persons and weak ones. If a man is not strong or a woman, he immediately claims the right of the weak as his own and uses it against the strong. Have you ever noticed, just pause real fast, have you ever noticed that oftentimes in our culture when groups that were previously marginalized and treated badly, when they gain either political or social favor and power, what do they often do? They begin marginalizing and treating badly the group they formerly accused of being unjust. It's the way of our world. Look at human history, look at now. He says, of course, it's what we do. He says, there are gifted and ungifted, simple and difficult people, devout and less devout. This is the question. He says, where is there a person who does not, with instinctive sureness, find the spot where he can stand and defend himself, but which he will never give up to another, for which he will fight with all the drive of his instinct of self-assertion? Now, this is, this is really frightening. All this can occur in the most polite or even pious environment like the American South. It is the struggle of the natural man for self-justification. He or she, they find it only in comparing with others. Let's get close to home. How often do you say or think, if I were in charge, dot, dot, dot? They just asked me, dot, dot, dot. You feel slighted, bitter, or angry when somebody else got the promotion, you didn't, and immediately you start sizing them up in all the ways that you're superior. Let's get close to home here. How many of us, when you walk into a room, you, as he's saying, you begin sizing people up, and the people that you find inferior to you, you are pretty dismissive to them, but the people that you feel are superior to you, socially or in some manner, you begin to feel anxious and you seek their attention. You want to, you're hoping for some self-justification in there. Let's get close to home here. Um, how many of us, outwardly, you're super nice, sweet, mannered, but inwardly you're harboring all sorts of bitterness and anger. You look at people that don't perform well or aren't morally as strong as you, and you look down your nose at them, but you never say it, but you have a bitterness towards them or that person all the while self-justifying yourself as morally superior to them. Why couldn't they be like me? I never made those mistakes. Things work out for them, never for me. I think Bonhoeffer would invite us to consider how the the layers of power and our quest for it actually are in, in each one of us. And I think he'd say, don't be fooled by it. Check it, watch it. Now, number two, I think he'd tell us, check the loudest voice in your life. What voice do you listen to? See, Saul's got men telling him. He's got advisors saying, David's out to harm you. And David goes, why do you listen? It's fake news. Why are you listening to what they say? I'm not out to get you. But hear it, all of us can find people or 
sources or articles or podcasts that can confirm every little thing it is that you need to justify yourself outside of God. It ain't hard to find. David's got advisors. His men are saying, does it get any more obvious, David? We're hiding out in the cave in the middle of the wilderness. That's the very cave the guy that's trying to kill you came in to go to the bathroom? Take him out. Now notice, for a moment, David, he moves. He cuts the corner of the robe. Now the robe is the symbol of power. Think of the coronation with King Charles that was several months back. They've got all the fancy dress and the fancy hat, the crown or whatever, and the scepters and all that. You can see how much I appreciate it all. Um, And uh, imagine going up in the coronation ceremony and cutting off a corner of King Charles's robe and running off with it. The dishonor that would be. So for a minute, David listens. But then notice, we're told it's a Hebrew idiom. His heart was seared. Isn't that a great idiom? We should bring that. He had a seared heart or conscience-stricken. It doesn't say it explicitly in the text, but a few chapters earlier, in chapter 16, we were told that the Spirit came on David from that day forward. I can't help but think. He's got his men telling him. These are his trusted guys. But the Spirit begins to whisper, and he goes, no, 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 no. This is not what Yahweh wants. I'm going to listen to the Spirit. Here's my question for you. What's the loudest voice? Is it a news channel? Is it a, is it a YouTube page? Is it a, a political writer? Um, is it a podcast? I am shocked by how many people are cold plunging because Joe Rogan and Huberman told them to. Uh, and it, maybe it's good. I have no idea. Um, but what's the voice that you listen to? Is it your spouse's approval? Your parents' approval? Let me ask it maybe a little more starkly. Where would you rank the voice of God's spirit, God's word, and God's people, his church? Where does it rank for you? And if it's way down the list, then David would say, man, you're gonna be fooled. What would David say? How did he get this kind of poise? Number three, he recognizes the Lord's anointed. Notice all this talk about the anointing. You can even underline it in your Bible. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hands on him because he's the anointed of the Lord. This repetition. Why all this talk about the anointing? You see, if I'm David, I'm going, I've been anointed. I'm the king. But notice, David still honors the dignity of Saul's anointing, even though he's also been anointed. He will not take power from Saul because it would would be an affront to the anointing of Saul. He refuses to do so. He sees the anointing in Saul. He sees the dignity of it. Now, let let me ask you, do you see that? I'm taking you back to Genesis again. Do you recognize the anointed? If Genesis 1 is correct, and I I believe it to be so, then it is saying something profound about every single person you interact with, from the person that you don't like at all, from the destitute, from the least to the greatest, your best friend and the person that's your greatest enemy. Saul is after David, and he goes, I would never lay a hand on God's anointed. Let me ask you, do you see the anointed around you? If Genesis 1 is correct, then each, every single person is like looking at royalty, made in God's image with a very special calling. That's what you see when you see another person. Do you see the anointing? A prince and princess of the most high. Get more more stark here. Do you see it in those that vote different than you? Talk different than you? Dress different than you? Different skin color than you? Different uh, gender than you or uh, different age than you? Different generation? David would say, you gotta see, I I saw the anointing in Saul. I couldn't lay a hand on him. Number four, David would tell us something that we really need to hear. He would say, follow through with your actions. We live in a culture that essentially says, all that matters is what I feel. My feelings, my experience, that's most important. And so as long as I understand my feelings and get in touch with my feelings, as long as I can somehow put a label to my feelings, and everybody respects my feelings, and it's helpful if I could post about it. So if I could take, have a take about my feelings, that's it, right? That's, that's all you really need to do in the modern world is, is have some feelings and have a take. Um, I think David would say, what's wrong with you people? He would say, it wasn't enough just for my heart to be seared. 
he could have gone and felt bad and wrote a psalm about it and journaled about it, and that would have meant nothing to David. Look at what he does. He, his body, his actions, his words. By the way, what we do with our body really matters both in our worship and in our service and stewardship of God's world. Look at what he does. He, cry, he speaks out. Saul leaves the cave. He's gone to the bathroom. David comes out there and goes, my Lord, the king. He'll call him father a few verses later. And then notice he bows before him. Do you realize what this posture in a, with a guy that's after you, is this a vulnerable posture or a posture of attack? Vulnerable. He bows before him. Saul can kill him in this moment. He's made himself incredibly vulnerable before Saul. I think David would say, it wasn't just enough for me to feel it. I embodied it with my words and actions. That's how I displayed this kind of forgiveness, this kind of mercy. Hear it. We can't be this kind of merciful, this kind of gracious in our world, extend God's goodness in our world if we also won't make ourselves vulnerable, and maybe even hurtable, rejectable, defenseless. You get it? David would say, I bowed before my enemy. That's how I show forgiveness. That's how you show humility. I didn't just feel it. Now, how do you have the ability to do that? I think David would follow that and say, it's because I had the right eyes to see. Check your vision. You gotta develop the right perspective. Notice this perspective. This is outrageous. This is unbelievable perspective in verse 15. There are five commands, but when you command God, there are imperatives in the grammar. When you command God, you make it a request. May God blank. So five, you can put one, two, three, four, and five in your Bible if you're taking notes. May the Lord be our judge. May he decide. May he consider. May he uphold. May he vindicate. Five in a row. The rest of the passage is very few of these. And here we go, five imperatives in Hebrew. See, David knows something. We make for terrible judges, humans. We don't see the full story. We don't know the heart of the person that did the terrible thing. We don't know what happened to them to get them to that place. We don't see the big picture. We often overextend vengeance and go way over the top. We make for really bad judges. There's some good ones, obviously. and Together, a system, maybe it can work, but... Individually, we rarely are proportionate. Sometimes we mask it, our actions, but internally we hate. And David would say, I made myself vulnerable, and he could have turned and killed me. He could have arrested me, he could have thrown me in jail. I've got a God who's in control, even in the chaos. I am willing to humble myself because I know ultimately there is one who is just. I appeal to him He's where my eyes are. And even in the swirl and chaos around me, I got my eyes and my perspective on him. Lastly, I think David would tell us to kiss the true king. Now, it might be a little weird terminology. I'm gonna take you there. See, as we close, David, as we continue our series these next few weeks, we're gonna see that David doesn't ultimately deliver. He, he'll fall victim to the same seduction of power, we're gonna see some real ugly stuff with David. And then when we look at the rest of the kings of the, the, the Davidic line, his kingdom after it in the Old Testament, very few bright spots. I mean, you go read your Old Testament, you're like, oh my goodness, what a mess. And it's like our Old Testament is whispering at us, screaming at us, we need the better king. Where's the true king? Even David couldn't deliver. And as the psalm book opens, chapters one and two, poem one and two of the psalm book, they form a unit. And Psalm two begins like this. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the people's plot? Why do the kings say, we will determine power for ourselves? It's power. We can have it. We can take it. It's Genesis three over and over again. This is the story of our world. And the one enthroned in heaven responds. He, he scoffs at them. Look at the mess you make when you, had, when you clamor for power. Yes, and kings and kingdoms, but inside you. Look at what it does. It's robbing you of joy. It's corroding your soul. He says, instead, I've installed my king on my holy mountain, my king on Zion. Does this language sound familiar? And that king will be like a son. I'll be like a father to him. 
And every year, this, uh, every time a new king came to the throne, this psalm was read, and yet all those Old Testament kings are screaming at us, where's the true king? It, this poem ends with this. Kings of the earth, us included, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord and kiss his son. A kiss is a, is a, is a sign of intimacy, closeness, connection. Think about like Eastern culture. It's a sign of connection, familial closeness. Honor the king, obey the king, follow the king, trust the king, but be in special relationship with this king and it'll set you free. And as that whisper builds in the Old Testament that we need a king, I turn to the first century and this Jesus guy shows up and starts talking about Yahweh's kingdom. And he starts talking about himself as the king, the son of man who establishes a kingdom and and it's different, it's weird, nobody gets it. Even on the week where he's gonna be betrayed and handed over and crucified, his friends, his disciples still don't get it. Look at them, they're still thirsting for power. What's wrong with us? They go, Jesus, can you do something for us? I got it. Uh, you want right? I want left? Okay, can we be on this? when you go under power, we want glory with you, right and your left. And the friends are mad. We should have thought of that. They beat us with a punch, Dang it. Look at what Jesus says. He says, don't you know? Don't you see the mess? Look at what the earthly kings do. They, they, they lord it over each other. They quest for power and authority. They've made a mess of this world. But not so with you, Jesus says. If you want to be great, you must become a servant of all. If you want to become first, you must become slave. Now, this is impossible. Come on, Jesus. Are you serious? Unless we see verse 45. For even the Son of Man, even this king, unlike any other, came to be served. Not to, not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. When we see that he was emptied so we could inherit everything, his glory was stripped of him so that we could be honored. He takes a crown, but it's a crown of thorns so you and I could have the riches of his kingdom. Don't you see? There's no other king like him. There's nothing else like this. And when we behold him and we receive honor from him, we have all that we need. It frees us from the rat race, frees us from the comparison, enables us to truly be this kind of humble. So fellowship, here's what I'm gonna invite us to do. We will, can we behold him? Can we kiss the true king? And we'll do so through worship. I invite you to stand and as we sing these words, let's think of how far our king was willing to go for us. Let's honor him. Yeah. 
kingdom yours is the glory yours is the power forever and ever more what a powerful and wonderful and beautiful name because see this king he became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross emptying himself that little that little new testament poem doesn't end there see, what paul says next is for this reason god has highly exalted him and that he is above every name. For the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess all over the world, in the heavens and the earth and under the earth. And every tongue would declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the story. That's the story that we walk in this day. He's our king. And when we kiss the king, we give our allegiance to him, and we see what he's done for us, how far he was willing to go for us, it frees us now to embody his kingdom in this world. That's our calling today and this week. Fellowship Faithful, we love you. Have a wonderful week of worship. If you need prayer, right through those doors up the stairs, you can pray with some people in our prayer room. If you want to take communion, right through those doors up the stairs, you can take communion. Have a great week. See you.